Well, please have a seat and take your copy of God's Word with me and open it to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark will be in chapter 10 this morning, verses 1 through 16. Uh, How about before I begin, a word about how we make a sermon and then a word about how we make a Sunday service. A word about how we make a sermon. A sermon is not... um, a talk on a topic that emerges from a passage. It is an exposition of the passage. So we don't come to a a Bible passage and think, oh, there's a topic we can talk about. We listen long to hear what God is saying to us through it. And we want the, the purpose of the sermon and even the tone of the sermon to reflect the purpose and the tone of the passage. Uh, And then in making a service, uh, when we make a service on a Sunday morning, we aren't just stringing together songs that it's good for us to sing or that are nice to sing. We hope they're good for us to sing and nice to sing. We hope to do that with uh, some deliberation and and, and care. Uh, I have a family member who would receive cards over the years from another family member of theirs and it'd be one of those Hallmark cards. And, you know, there'd be a paragraph there and that individual's name would be signed at the bottom. And I always thought that was kind of funny, but you have to know the person. They carefully picked that card out with those words, very specific for that person and that occasion. You could take them to heart. So as we put a service together and we stitch texts and songs together on the Lord's Day, hear them that way. These aren't just songs written by other people that we've got to keep singing. These are love letters from your pastors. These are put together just for you. And this morning we come to a hard topic, a hard topic of marriage and divorce, which is what happens when marriages fail, when marriages crash, and they are not intended to crash and to fail. And that's good news. We come to a hard topic this morning that's embedded in this morning's passage And I want you to know that the songs that we've held out this morning are for those who are crying out to God from sorrows deep. And for those of you who need to know that you're the apple of the Father's eye and your forgiven love accepted, clothed in righteousness divine, and you have a spirit, a helper, a comforter, and a guide in the Holy Spirit. All that's all of ours today. Are you ready for it? Let's get into Mark chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce To send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. 
And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Well, we find ourselves on the path of discipleship. We're continuing to follow Jesus, and Jesus is getting into our kitchen today. This week and next, we, we come to touchy topics. We come to the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage and a little bit on children. Next week, we'll be talking about money and possessions and how that works in the, in the Christian life. Jesus has had hard words for his disciples, and we get more hard words today. And yet, as we've been learning, Jesus is not leading us on a road just to beat us up. He's leading us on the path of the new creation. He's leading us back to Eden. All of his words are good for us, and all of his words are true. In all of his words, he is a rock for us this morning. Here's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer for us this morning as we work through a, a difficult uh, subject is that you would be confronted where you need to be confronted. This passage confronts disciples embedded in a culture of easy divorce. Friends, you and I are embedded in a culture of easy divorce. And some of us, many of us, all of us, to one extent or another, must be sharply confronted this morning lest we end up in ruins and our marriages in ruins. Some of you need to be comforted this morning. And there are comforting words on the page here. It ends with children in Jesus' arms as he's blessing them. And there's a word for there. There's a word in there for us this morning, which I pray that you will hear. And I pray that you'll be compelled by the word this morning. Be compelled to repent now before things get harder and worse in your marriage. And that's where they go apart from repentance. And I pray that kids, you'll be compelled by a vision of marriage. And Jesus is teaching on marriage, which is incredible and beautiful and mind-blowing. And you'll get it nowhere else like you'll get it from the Bible. I pray that you'll be compelled, compelled by it. That this sermon would shape who you marry, maybe. Would slow you down in a relationship that you're in. And I pray, husbands and wives, that this sermon and this text would compel you to rebuild your marriage on the Word of God if it hasn't been built on that to this point. There is only one rock on which to build our lives and marriages, and it is Jesus. Everything else, friends, is sand. So this morning, I'm going to call out some sand. You might find out you're building your marriage on sand. It's a hard word, but it's a good word because I'm going to point you to a rock. Well, let's get into it. Mark chapter 10, 1 through 16, which we have read already. And as we do, my prayer for you is as I've shared, and maybe my ask for you would be to, to bracket any particular scenarios you might have in mind. This sermon isn't designed to be a comprehensive, systematic teaching on the Bible's teaching on, on this topic. Um, and so you might have a scenario in your own life or someone's life in mind and just know, yeah, that's in my mind and, a, and about a half a dozen others and I'm not driving a sermon at any one of those. We just pick up the next text in the Bible and God does what he does. So as I pray for you, those things that I share, be in prayer for me to be faithful here this morning and, and even for me to trust God with this as I entrust you to him. We begin this morning 
with marriage problems. We begin with marriage problems in verses 1 through 5. There were marriage problems in Jesus' day. Verses 1 here, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. We're in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. This should bring back some memories if we were to map out where Jesus is going and where things happen in this book. This is John the Baptist's old territory. This is where he was doing his work. And you remember what happened to John the Baptist. His head got cut off and it got served up at a party for Herodias and her daughter and and Antipas. And you might remember that the reason why Herodias asked her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head was because Herodias didn't like what John the Baptist was saying to her husband about divorce and remarriage. Herod Antipas had married Herodias, who was married herself to Philip. She divorced Philip to marry Herod. Herod liked to fashion himself king of the Jews. And so it was all the talk in the region as to whether that was legit or not. There's this salacious divorce and remarriage on the headlines of the region there in Judea and beyond the Jordan where Jesus has shown up again. You see, the Pharisees had aligned themselves with the Herodians. So they were in with Herod and his crew and had a certain investment in what people had to say and think about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Reminds me a little bit of in my own younger years in the 90s, all of our younger years, we'll give everyone credit for being younger than the 90s, uh, with Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Things started to go sour in about 92 and 96. They were divorced. Tabloids, newspaper headlines, and all the rest. Paparazzi were all over them. And after that divorce, there was the question of Diana's legal standing in the royal family. And she had a number of military appointments that were removed. And she was then no longer called Her Royal Highness, but she was called I think Diana, Princess of Wales, that's what she was called after the divorce. So if you were a a prominent pastor or a prominent um, politician of the day and you got a call from a journalist and you got a question, is divorce permitted? Is remarriage permitted? That had a certain context. It It had a certain fire to it based on the context in which it was asked. And and that scenario that I just put before you isn't so different than what's happening here. Verse 2, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, the crowds came for his teaching. They came to Jesus. So the Pharisees come for him and they come with a test. And what's the test? What's the big thing they're going to ask him to see if they can't corner him now as they're seeking to destroy him? Well, it's a question about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the question. What's Jesus going to say? Does Jesus know where he's at? How will he get out of this one? To answer it is to make a political statement. To answer it is to get yourself in trouble. So there's a change of focus from the crowds and Jesus' teaching as the setting now to this, this exchange with The Pharisees who had aligned themselves with the Herodians and meant no good purpose by Jesus in this question. 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? Well, that's good. So let's point them to their Bible. What does your Bible say? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Is that true? It says that, roughly that, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. What will Jesus say to that? Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So we move from thinking of divorce and marriage problems in Jesus' day to divorce and marriage problems in Moses' day. We'll get to our day in a moment, but um, our day isn't unique. Our lives aren't unique to these kinds of problems. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, it is the case that God, through Moses and the Old Covenant, had given Israel instructions concerning divorce. And God did allow a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away. But he says it's because of your hardness of heart that he did that. So which is it? Like, did God, is he cool with it? Is he cool with it or not? If he's not cool with it, why didn't he just say, don't do it? Some simple clarifications from context are in order. God's words and the old covenant were not a matter of a prescription for divorce. Like, you can stay married, but hey, in these scenarios, you're good. And then here's the process. Here's the paperwork. You're going to fill this out, and then uh, she's good and you're good. Moving on. It wasn't a matter of a prescription where in any scenario it was required that they divorce. It was a matter of regulation, regulating what was happening. There were divorces happening and men sending their wives out of the house. And even in the documents that we have, we know that it's for things like looks and things like a bad meal and without apology. No doubt, finding someone else along the way and get rid of her. This is how bad things had gotten. Sin under Adam. Divorce and the tearing of relationships and and lives and in the context of divorce can be worse than, than losing someone to death. And some of you know that firsthand. And I can't immediately relate and don't want to immediately relate, but have cared for, for some, have counseled others in these kinds of terribly difficult situations. There was a, a little line that's supplied in the mind of the first hearer here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They asked Jesus in verse 2. Well, if you were to read this same account in Matthew you would see that there's a line for any reason that was added. You know, if I was to say, is it okay for a 16-year-old to drink? You would say, yes, because it's important for a 16-year-old to live. And you're thinking to yourself now, what's he talking about? Because you filled in a line, drink alcohol, And you thought 
21's the age limit. Or line, not limit. Whatever you call it. They can't drink legally before 21. I think that's it. Look it up. You're responsible to know your own laws. I'm over 21. Was it okay for a 16-year-old to drink? And you, and you know how to, you know what I mean. Well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For any reason, that's the question. And that's supplied in the other gospel account. And it's not needed here to be accurate. We just need to understand the context to understand what is actually said. And what Jesus is responding to. He's responding to a culture of easy Divorce, even pride in divorce. This matter in Deuteronomy 24 was not a matter of a prescription for divorce, but the regulation of divorce that was happening. You see, it wasn't a matter of permission, but a matter of protection. Here's what I mean by that. If men are sending their wives away, and by the way, the world wasn't like it is today with the economy that we have, with knowledge work being the main way we go about making a living, with medicine and such that can mean you might not have 12 babies but two. Are you following me? The men and their arms were how the dollars were made, how the living was made, how the food was provided, how the animals were kept. And the way that women were cared for and provided for by God was in the context of marriage through a man that would provide. God made us different with different strengths. Both are needed in a home. And the woman was cared for and provided for by God by a husband who brought to that relationship certain strengths and that entailed his responsibility to provide for her. And so as men in the, the Israelite community are sending their women out for all variety of reasons, those women are vulnerable. They leave with stigma. And so consider now why God allows a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her on the way. He is slowing the thing down. The man has to articulate his reasons, which should be a little embarrassing. And then if he divorces her, she gets to walk away with a certificate, which clears her name, or at least helps in that direction, and puts her in a position to remarry. Does that make sense? That's what the context provides for us. And that's why Jesus can say, when they say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. He can say, you don't get it. You've turned what was supposed to be, as it's been said, a barrier to divorce and breaks on your divorce into a bridge to easy divorce. They'd gotten legal about it and they manipulated the word to get what they want. And that happens all the time on all kinds of topics. The word of God manipulated by those who know it well to get what they want from it. And in so doing, they oppose the son of God, the very subject of the word. And on the topic of sex 
and marriage. There's all kinds of shenanigans that are done with the Bible these days to support this and to endorse that practice or that policy in the name of Jesus. So here they are. It's so fascinating to watch these Pharisees. You know, they won't let you eat this and they won't let you eat that without cleaning your hands in this or that way. But they will defend your right to divorce your wife for any reason. And they'll support Herod and his marriage because they've aligned themselves against the son. Oh, there were marriage problems in Jesus' day and there were There were marriage problems in Moses' day and God was kind to provide some regulation to slow the corroding effects of divorce on the Israelite community. And of course, there are marriage problems in our day because we too are hard-hearted toward God and his word. We're all hard-hearted this side of the fall. And praise God, he's brought us together and he's given us new hearts. Now, let me say some things about divorce in our own day. On the one hand, you just need to hear from this pulpit that the situation is better than it is often portrayed to be. Preachers like statistics. And there's a famous statistic that the divorce rate is 50% and it's no better in churches. And I don't have statistics in my Bible for how things are today. So Christian leaders and pastors and writers work with the literature that's out there and the studies that have been done. And as statistics can be manipulated in any variety of ways, so those statistics are manipulated or, or perhaps read sometimes for their, most, their worst read. But a careful look turns out a different number, more like 20 to 25% in the culture at large in America. And that's good news, isn't it? That even... Even in the United States, as we're letting go of God and the Bible, culturally, we hang on to our marriages for the most part, that by and large, most marriages make it. That's super encouraging. And when you get in the church, actually, the numbers tick up. So there's reason for encouragement. On the other hand, we're not in a great place here. Uh, Divorce is too easy. And marriage is not held in esteem, even, even defined as it actually is. In the 70s and the 80s, the divorce rate was increasing. And after about mid-80s, the divorce rate has gone down. But that's because there's more cohabitation and people living together and not getting married at all. So that's not encouraging. We expect more from marriage these days. If God isn't in the picture and the church isn't a part of the equation, then you may look to marriage for everything God and the church is to give you. Well, marriage can't do all of that. It'll let you down. We expect more of it and we support it less. Marriage is not supported and esteemed in the culture at large. Marriage is not supported so much in community like it was In previous times, not to overly romanticize life in America only 50 years ago, but life was more simple and more local in some ways. 
Marriages are on a bit of an island. Even Christy and I have moved around and lost, well, lost, but we have lost the daily contact with all the people who knew us well for for five-year run and then for a seven-year run and then we're here and we hope to be here a good long time. We need you around us. But as you move around, you're detached from community. The economy doesn't help us, just the way that things work. You work over here and people know you and then you have family over here and And church over here, that's good. But you're fragmented in the way that you experience life and and the way your social experience is so that there aren't less eyes on on you but more eyes and it's easier to live a fragmented uh, existence and for a marriage to fray without people knowing it. The the law doesn't help help here. It was in the 70s that we got no-fault divorce where the state has historically recognized and then supported marriage because it recognizes that marriage is critical f- for doing things the state can't do. But no default, no, excuse me, no fault divorce says that you don't need before the eyes of the state uh, to prove a reason why they have violated this covenant and its terms. You need only to say, to say there are irreconcilable differences So there aren't those breaks on it like there used to be. And none of this helps us in our own marriages. You know, we even sell divorce to each other. You may have seen billboards or ads in magazines making it sound exciting and call this number and we'll make it easy. Oh, it's never easy. All that's a lie. And of course, there's untold pain. Wayne Grudem in an essay that he's written has helped us in pulling some things together and points us to a study that has been done that's unique among studies. 1971, it tracked some incredible number of divorces and families over a long period of time. And at the 10-year mark, at the 10-year mark, single parents consistently said that the burden has not gotten lighter. It has remained difficult. And at that 10-year mark, half of women and one-third of men say they remain angry. And of course, that anger over the years only compounds and spreads and corrodes relationships. Children at the 10-year mark, older as they are, feel neglected, lonely, unprepared for the future and unprotected consistently. Half of those Between the ages of 19 and 29, 10 years later, are wandering, aimless, lack ambition, plans for their life. Boys not confident in their manhood, girls uneasy and unsafe with boys. I just say that because it's really hard, and it is. And I say that because we need to hear it. Consider this, if marriage is a gift from God and it's not good for man to be alone and if it's right and good and kids are made to have a mom and a dad, then we just shouldn't be surprised at all to learn that it puts kids and all of us at a huge disadvantage, and that's not even the right word, to find ourselves 10 years removed from a divorce Truth is, it's like an atom bomb goes off in your life and you're never the same. And some of you know it, and that's not to shame you at all. 
This should scare some of us away from it. That's partly what I'm doing here. If marriage is the gift that it is, then it is a grief to lose. If marriage unites a man and a woman as it does and creates new life, then of course it would be devastating on the other side no matter what we tell ourselves. I don't know how many friends I had whose parents divorced in in the 90s when I was a teenager and after that in college. And you'd hear them say, you know, my, my parents are happier. They're happier. And I think they're trying to make the most of it. And maybe you've had to say that yourself. Maybe you've heard your kids say that. I think they're happier. It's just important to say that ending a marriage under any terms for any reasons is never a good option. It might be the best of bad options in very narrow circumstances, but we should never say it's a good option, and we should just own that. Marriages are meant to be together, and this is why Wayne Grudem says it so perfectly here, that the Old Testament and the New Testament offer a consistent emphasis of preserving marriage and avoiding divorce in all but very few narrowly defined circumstances. And that narrowly defined parameter is God's grace to us. We begin with marriage problems. Now, plans for rebuilding a marriage. Verses 6 through 12, plans for rebuilding a marriage. And really here... It's more than a marriage, isn't it? It's plans for rebuilding your life together, plans for rebuilding a family, plans for rebuilding a a society because how things go out there is related to how things go in a home. Don't tell me there's not a connection between what's happening on the streets and what's happening in homes and with dads. Now we start. We start with a renewed mind. Jesus is going to take us to the scriptures and in the Christian life, we, we start again, we start anew, we, we are sanctified by the Spirit and all these things we just sang about that God does. And it, and it starts with a renewal of the mind by the Word of God. And Jesus is going to renew the minds of these Pharisees by the Word of God. And we're listening in and the disciples are listening in for exactly what they need to hear in order that their marriages might be preserved, in order that they might, as they write their New Testament for us, Write to us things like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This mystery is profound and it goes back to the beginning. Jesus takes us back to the beginning. He takes us to the beginning of the story, which is the beginning of our story. He tells us where to go. He tells us what marriage is and he tells us what's at stake. He tells us where to go. Well, he takes us to the word, as I've said. Notice he doesn't go back to Deuteronomy. Remember he said, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write. So they're, they're all about like the divorce law. They're all about the exception. They're fixated on what they can do. That's not what Jesus is thinking. Jesus didn't have in mind Deuteronomy 24. That's where they lived. They lived there. Jesus takes him to Genesis. The way to, the way to rebuild your marriage... The way to build a marriage, those of you heading into marriage, is not by getting out the crash landing manual. You should know about the crash landing manual. 
God provides a way for a woman to go out with a certificate of divorce because of his kindness to her to protect her from being alone and unprovided for or stigmatized in a way that she could not become remarried. Remarriage was a given for a woman. So you need to know about the crash landing manual. But that's not where you build a marriage, is it? You don't learn about how to manage your finances by studying bankruptcy law. (laughs) Maybe you should know about that too. I hope you don't need to know about that. But you study it by studying the, the first principles. Well, Jesus is taking us back to first things. And friends, this is what you and I need today. We need first things. He tells us where to go, to the beginning of the story, to the word. Now he tells us what marriage is. He tells us what marriage is. From the beginning, verse 6, of creation, God. Well, let's stop there. From the beginning of creation, God. First thing we see, and I'll have a little list, is that marriage is objective. Friends, this might sound obvious. It's a real thing. It's a thing. It's real. Marriage is real. It is not a social construct. Like my sociology teacher said, at Wentzville High in 1998 in sociology, that marriage is a social construct that societies create and define that has evolved and can look different in different places. And I think that semester I wrote a paper on absolute truth. Those things I heard in those classes were always provoking these little epiphanies and these moments of getting clarity on what it meant to be a Christian. And I was a new Christian. I don't think she knew what to do with my paper. I hooked it into the material of the class. I have other stories from high school. They were a lot of fun. In any case, maybe she's a believer now. That'd be great. But she wasn't then. Marriage was a a social construct. Marriage isn't something that you get to decide what it is. Marriage Marriage isn't even something the state gets to decide. Marriage predates the state. If you hit delete on the state, your marriages don't go away. They don't go away. And then everyone doesn't get started making up what it is. Marriage is basic to humanity. It precedes and transcends the state. The state may recognize it support it, benefit from the fruits of it, but it does not define it. A little more on that in a moment. Marriage is objective. Marriage is complementary. From the beginning of creation, God made them, them, male and female. It's complementary. God made humans in his image, and there were two kinds of humans. Two kinds. There's a male kind and a female kind. I don't need to get into it. But it doesn't take long to figure out the difference. And there are differences of all kinds. Well, God made them to go together. And I hope it's not crude, but let's go to the garage. If you have a nut and you have a bolt, the nut and the bolt, the bolt can be married. Right? They fit one inside the other. There is a natural ordering to that pair. If you were to say, but a nut and a nut, or a bolt and a bolt can be married, you would have to mean something different by marriage. And this is why Christians insist that the state is simply 
wrong in defining marriage or allowing marriage to be defined as anything than besides a man and a woman. Because we are now talking about something different. For a man and a man cannot be married. And a woman and a woman cannot be married. And so we speak about gay marriage in quotations. And it's important to do that. In love for our neighbors, it's important for us to do that. If marriage is worth anything for us in society, we have to keep the definition clean. It does not help anybody, no matter how good it might feel to affirm it, when the builders are constructing their house to affirm that a nut is as good as a bolt. Just take your pick. Whatever the builder feels like on any particular day. Feelings mean nothing when you're building a house for me to move in on. And the structural integrity of a society and someone's life will hang on your understanding of one of the most basic things besides human life itself, and that is human marriage. Marriage is objective. It is complementary. It is primary. God made the male and female. Verse 7, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Okay. So the first couple commandments are oriented in the Ten Commandments toward God. Have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. And you get down to the ones that are more horizontal. Honor your father and mother. Here we have a command to leave your father and mother. Marriage trumps that super basic relationship and even that basic allegiance. So many marriages go so wrong so early on because the couple does not leave or someone does not leave. Decide how much you should be talking to your mom. Mom, decide how much it's actually good for your daughter to be talking to you. We've all got our stories and some of them are personal Marriage is primary. It's going to disrupt things. When your son or daughter get married, it's going to disrupt your life in profound ways, and it should because they should be leaving. It's primary and it's an exclusive. They leave their father and mother and hold fast to who? His wife. Husband and wife hold fast one to another and not to others. They leave all others and cling only to their spouse. When I conduct a wedding, I have vows that I put before the couple, and I may make an adjustment at their request here and there, but there's no just free-form writing vows about how much we love each other. Because in the moment of marriage and an engagement, without some direction from Scripture and a pastor to see that some things need to get said and vowed, we're likely to commit our emotions to each other. And that's not a sure foundation. Nope. To hang together in an exclusive way, in a biblical way, is going to require fortitude and volition and vows and a commitment. And that's what a marriage ceremony is about. And when you show up to marriage ceremony, you're there to say, amen to that and I'll hold you to it. Marriage is objective. It's complementary. It's primary in your relationships. It's exclusive. And it's total. It's total. The two shall become one flesh. Get this, biologically speaking, and I could get out of my depth really quick when I start talking biology. I promise not to do a whole lot of it here. But biologically speaking, a male is a biological unit and a female is a biological unit. And when the two of them come together, 
They make a mated pair, a new organism, complete in itself, male and female. The two actually, literally, biologically become one. Dear brothers and sisters, and may I appeal to those of you who aren't married yet, especially children and young people, don't unite yourself as one apart from marital vows to be together as one forever. Don't do it. Every other song, every other billboard, an ad on your computer screen is going to say, go for it. Don't do it. God is too good. He's too good. And the world has no interest in your life and how it goes, but he does. And Jesus takes us back to creation. Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's beautiful. And there's comfort for those of you who've sinned in this way and we'll get there soon enough. But just let me exhort all of you. Don't sin against God and yourself and another in this way. Let this be the day you decided and keep it. Marriage is total. You're totally together. You're one organism. You're, you're one bank account. One shared life. One shelter. One, one bed. One future. Because marriage is also permanent. Verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Divorce will happen on this side of Genesis chapter 3. But the destruction of, the failure of, the crashing of, the ending of, and those are important words to embrace, not conscious decoupling. Let's just own it as horrifying as it is. Divorce was not a part of the design plans for marriage. A marriage can end. It's possible to actually divorce. I'm not saying it's not theologically possible. But the divorce was not a part of the design plans. It's a full commitment one to another. And exactly what Adam needed and Eve needed. Praise God for marriage. Well, Jesus has taught us concerning where we're to go to rebuild our marriage. What marriage is, we build it on the word and it's this. And now what's at stake? What's at stake Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So they retire afterwards. Jesus didn't say everything there is to say. And you may have questions about this very topic after the sermon. And that's just fine. I'm not going to answer them all as we go. We're not addressing every situation that might be on your minds. As important as every situation is. And your elders are happy to engage every difficult situation. But here the the disciples have to pull Jesus aside because they've got questions. And this sounds very strong. We don't know what they asked exactly. Surely they said, this is difficult. But verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, Jesus' difficult word just got just got harder. Just got harder. Let me answer some questions for us. And this is how I'll answer them for us today. Uh, Let me say, you've got to give yourself to the Bible. 
And even as it concerns a church's practice when it comes to discipline and leading you together, elders have to work hard at this kind of thing. And just FYI, the elders are working through this kind of thing. And it'll take many months, and I don't know where the end of it is. But we're reading Bible passages and asking questions and wrestling these things down. All the guys are. That's for everyone to do. My job here is to preach the Bible best I hear it. So uh, you give yourself to the Bible too, but let me answer a few questions for us. Best I know how. Are all divorcees adulterers if they get married? Are all divorcees adulterers if they get married? My answer to that is no. There is something that is unstated in Mark's passage, which I believe is assumed. If you were to read in in Matthew's gospel, it would say, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, except for sexual immorality, commits adultery. So there is an exception that Jesus offers, and we don't interpret that other, I don't interpret the Matthew clause in light of this, and then say, well, it doesn't mean divorce in marriage, it must mean divorce in a betrothal period. Sometimes you'll hear that view. No, I take it that it's assumed here and made explicit by Matthew. And there are other ways in which we might do this. If I was to say, if you go 100 miles an hour down the highway, you'll get arrested. Well, that's true. Unless you're a cop chasing someone who's going 120 miles an hour, you won't get arrested. That exception is a given. Well, in, in the context of this first century world and Jewish culture, divorce for sexual immorality wasn't Surprising, it was assumed. It was normal to divorce after sexual immorality. The issue at hand here is divorce for, quote, any cause. That's the issue that the Pharisees are pressing. I hope you hear that now. Jesus is not addressing case law. There are exceptions offered, for example, in Matthew. In Pornea, by that, sexual immorality doesn't have to be exclusively and only intercourse, although that would be an obvious exception. It could be other egregious forms of sexual immorality. I would say a pornography addiction that is enduring and unrepentant. Maybe a, lot, a lustful thought in a moment does not meet the exception of Pornea, sexual immorality, but a devotion to lustful thoughts and engagements and pornography could well meet the exception of Pornea, sexual immorality. Let that scare you men. Jesus provides an exception in the case of sexual immorality. And in those cases, remarriage would not be adultery. It was also assumed in the first century world and in the Jewish culture that when divorce was valid or legally valid, like in this way, permitted, then a remarriage was acceptable. Another exception we find in the New Testament would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul is addressing people in a variety of stations, and he's encouraging them to stay in their station. And then he addresses the Christian who has become a Christian, but they are married to an unbelieving spouse who isn't interested in this Jesus stuff, and they take off. And it says, 
if your spouse does not consent to live with you any longer, then let them go. And in that context, not consenting to live and separating and leaving was actually divorce. What it means is don't chase them down as to insist that it not happen. In other words, it's happened. And you're passive in it. That is the the second clear exception that is offered in the New Testament. After Paul offers that exception, which is given to him as an occasion from a letter they apparently wrote to him, he says, in such cases, you're not bound, you're not enslaved. In other words, you're free to remarry in that instance. So what's clear enough is that in the case of sexual immorality, in the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, divorce is permitted and and remarriage is permitted. And no, in those cases, an individual is not guilty of committing adultery. Now, it's possible there may be some other exceptions. I won't get into that. But let me just say, beyond that, we are outside of the historic majority tradition, outside of the majority academic tradition. I'm growing convinced that when Paul says, in such cases, after that instance in 1 Corinthians 7, that that may refer to a class of cases, so that both sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse are themselves expressions of a violation of the covenant of marriage. That's all work for another day, and it's not work that I'm personally done with yet. But remember what we've said, that except in very narrowly defined circumstances, marriages are to hang together. And it may be hard for you to hang together in your marriage, and God knows it. And he intends your marriage to stay. He knows it. And he can strengthen you to work at it and persevere at it and bear costs involved with it. And we pray for you and support you in it. As it concerns divorce and that question, don't ever engage that question without multiple eyes and multiple elders and the shepherds that God has given you here at Heritage Bible Church. It is part of why we're in membership together. Praise God, we're not alone in these kinds of things. And often enough, I had a phone call scheduled with a friend this last week, had to cancel it, but almost lost his marriage. And they're doing great. And that can happen. It can look, it can look as dark as your face on the pavement. You're in your own blood because you're a drunkard and you're harming your wife, and on the other side of the church's arms around you and love for you and care for you and patience with you because we love you, your marriage is together 10 years later, and you're giving glory to Jesus. I have seen it. I cannot promise that outcome, but I'm telling you, sometimes God does it. So is everyone who gets remarried after a divorce an adulteress? The answer is no. There are exceptions. And they are unstated here, but they are assumed and made explicit elsewhere. And let me say that while it is wrong to permit things God forbids, it is also, even though I've said everything I've said, it is also wrong to forbid, to forbid things God permits. So where there is clear permission to divorce, that is something we cannot stand in the way of someone doing, although we may compel them to be reconciled and to do that work, which is to say, 
If you're a divorcee, certainly under certain circumstances, you carry no scarlet letter if Jesus has given you permission. Don't go off this sermon and go do anything. But that's some high-level comments on divorce and remarriage. Another question, is the original marriage still marriage? I would say no. It's curious, he says, you commit adultery... He commits adultery against his former wife if he goes and marries another. And she commits adultery if she goes and gets married or she wasn't supposed to get divorced in the first place. So what was the original union? I just find nothing except this statement here to say that that original union is still intact. The woman at the well did not currently have five husbands. She had one husband. No, she was with someone, not her husband. She had previously had five husbands. A final question. Are you still in adultery if you've engaged in a marriage sinfully? And I would answer that no. We show up on Sunday all the time and we find out things we've done and are doing are sinful. And we repent of those things and we say, I was wrong and God is right. And, and then we're in the circumstances created by our sin. And then we live inside those circumstances and we thank God for saving us. And we take the next step of obedience. And for you, it would be to stay in your marriage and to be vigilantly committed to that marriage in which you're in. So there's some answers to some questions on those last verses there. Now, a final question. What about the children? What about the children? Verses 13 through 16. You know, this could have been a different sermon. We say that often enough, right? But it makes sense that this would follow for children come from a marriage. Children are the concern of a marriage. Children bear the consequences of a broken marriage. And friends, children also have something to teach us about the way back in marriage. Children have something to teach us about how we get into the kingdom. Children have something to teach us about how to get back to Eden and get out of our hard hearts. There's some instruction here from children. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. Get the kids out of the way. What are they doing here? But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He's not saying all children belong to God. He's not saying all children are Christians. He is saying this is how you come to God. And this is how you get in the kingdom unhindered dependence and saying, I need you and I'm here. And kids come running when things are right to their parents when they walk in the door or when they wake. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There is something worse than the worst divorce. There is something greater than the best marriage. And it is entry into the kingdom of heaven. And how do we know it? How do we know it? Maybe you're asking that question from sorrows deep. In 10 years or more removed from a divorce and anger is still a problem. And you're still experiencing the effects. How do we know it from sorrows deep? Because Jesus said it. And we can come to him like a child and enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And look at what Jesus does. He took them in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them, which is a beautiful way for a sermon on divorce and remarriage to end. The promise of the blessing of Jesus on your life. You, dear saint, in the arms of Jesus. Are you a victim of divorce? Find yourself in the arms of Jesus today. Are you the victimizer having committed adultery and been unfaithful and cruel and lied and harmed and shamed? I couldn't speak of some of the things that have happened to some of you that I know. And I'm sorry. You can find yourself in the arms of Jesus helped and held and blessed this morning. Are you a child, young or old, who knows the heartache and the loneliness and the abandonment and the frustration and the disillusionment? And even as we said, the lack of ambition and the lack of life goals, lack of confidence in your manhood or way with men. You can find yourself this morning safe in the arms of Jesus and blessed by him. And let me offer this last word for those of you who may be on the edge. I don't believe in irreconcilable differences. I believe in hard hearts that permit divorce and divorce certificates and remarriage in some cases. But I don't believe in irreconcilable differences because God has reconciled me to himself. And that was a big, a big, as big an irreconcilable difference as you can have an enemy of the living God. And you don't believe it either if you believe the gospel. So if you can, hang on. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word from Jesus, hard as it is. And we give you thanks that it's not the only word. We have a word of a new creation and of a day when all will be set right and the sins committed against us will be punished and we will be safe in Jesus' arms personally and we'll see him face to face, not just in his word as great as this is. And we long for that day. Father, I pray you would answer my prayers for this sermon that some would be confronted and made uneasy, even frustrated by what discipleship demands. And I pray that others would be comforted to know how much you care for them. And that all of us would be compelled by this beautiful vision of marriage and your kindness to give it to us. May we have new hearts, Father, not hard hearts. Take care of us, hold us in your arms, and bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen.